hope you're all staying reasonably cool today in our building. This is the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new here, I see a few new faces and some familiar ones. We are a graduate school of national security and international affairs dedicated to developing leaders with a sound understanding of statecraft and the realities of international politics. Uh, we base this all on a knowledge and appreciation of the founding principles of the American political economy and the Western moral tradition. Um, is the uh, the sound level okay on the microphone? Is, can everyone hear well enough? Okay, great. Okay. Okay. Great, 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 great. Uh, I hope it does. I think it is. Um, but in any case, I just want to go over just one or two logistical points as well before we begin. This event is uh, going to be on the record, so if you do want to take any pictures, we will also be doing that. You're most welcome. Uh, the title of today's event is The Indispensability of U.S. Nuclear Weapons and Why Anti-Nuke Idealists Are Wrong. Um, I will, uh, of course, uh, throw this it over to the speaker before I, I um, get in, into anything pertaining to the title. Uh, but I do want to give you a brief introduction about who our uh, distinguished speaker is today. And so this is Ms. Rebecca Heinrich. She is a fellow at the Hudson Institute, and she provides research and commentary on a range of national security issues and specializes in nuclear deterrence, missile defense, and counterproliferation. And her work has been published in numerous different periodicals and uh, news sources, including the Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Times, and Investors Business Daily. And she has a variety of other accolades, um, but I will uh, save time and, and throw it over to you. And ma'am, thank you so much for coming to the Institute of World Politics today. How about we give our speaker a warm uh, round of applause. Thank you very much. Well, thank you all for being here on this hot, what day of the week is this, Tuesday? On this hot Tuesday. Um, and in the afternoon, too, when everybody wants to go home. So thank you all for being here um, uh, to, to consider this really important topic. Um, I am a fellow at Hudson Institute. I'm also a contributing editor at Providence Magazine, um, which I commend both of those to you, although my remarks here do not necessarily reflect either institution. Um, but I have published quite a bit um, um, for both um, under both of those bylines. Uh, and then, I, if I may, I'd like to commend um, this recent publication. Um, this is the National Institute for Public Policy. It's a recent, it's a nuclear post, it's a nuclear review for a new age. And this is anticipation of the administration's nuclear posture review, uh, which the Secretary of Defense announced will be, it's underway, it'll take six months or so for the administration to put this out. Um, but uh, I was uh, fortunate enough to contribute to some of this and I, I could not uh, commend this more strongly to, to, to those who are interested in this topic. Uh, it is on their website and I will be discussing some of the principles and application here today that are discussed at greater length in that uh, pretty hefty document, although it is so accessible to read, so I, I do commend that to you. So why do we have nuclear weapons? After all, they are the world's most devastating, terrifying weapons. And what I hope to do is discuss uh, the only time they've ever been employed and give a defense for that, and then also kind of move back from there and make an argument as to why those who are in the arms control community um, are wrong about the U.S nuclear weapons and why they're wrong to go about U.S. nuclear disarmament. 
Now, the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki killed more than 100,000 men, women, children, and uh, 10 American prisoners of war. Not only do nuclear weapons cause massive destruction and devastation, the psychological impact that they have on those who survive is difficult to fathom. It was so impactful when we dropped those bombs that it compelled the Japanese imperialists to finally, finally sue for peace. When many Americans think of World War II, they often think of the horrors of Germany's Hitler, the concentration camps, the extermination of Jews and gypsies. So why didn't the United States drop those nuclear bombs on Hitler's Germany? Well, it's a matter of timing, actually. This is a question often asked by those implying that perhaps President Truman's decision to drop the nuclear bombs on Japan was motivated, at least in part, by some sort of uh, racism underlying that reason. But the first test of a nuclear bomb took place in July of 1945, two months after the Nazi surrender. It wasn't as if the Allies held back against the Nazis either. The Allied firebombing campaign against Dresden certainly provides evidence that if the Nazis had been on the offense rather than having thrown in the towel at the time that Truman was testing nuclear weapons, they could have been conceivably on the receiving end of the bomb. But it was not to be. Instead, it was the equally brutal and merciless Japanese imperialists who would be the one and only, so far, people to experience the horrors of a nuclear attack. President Obama, referring to those who died at Hiroshima, said, quote, those who died, they are like us, end quote. Oh, but they were very different than us in important ways. As David French reminded us in a piece for National Review, and I'm going to quote this, um, it's a little bit lengthy, but not too lengthy. He said, but in remembering Hitler, we cannot forget Japan. Japan killed an estimated 14 million Chinese citizens in its invasion of China, and during the course of that invasion, its forces acted much like Hitler's SS, conducting mass-scale rapes, grotesque human experimentation, enslaving countless men, women, and children. Japan's rank-and-file military fought with a ferocity matched on the European theater of operations only by Hitler's most dedicated fanatics. Japan's troops fought to the last man. And when its military plight grew increasingly desperate, it launched a suicide bombing campaign that dwarfs anything ISIS or Al-Qaeda have imagined, much less attempted. Even many Japanese civilians demonstrated that they'd rather die than surrender throwing themselves off cliffs to escape American forces, end quote. And not only did they throw themselves over cliffs, as Richard Frank's book entitled Downfall, The End of the Imperial Japanese Empire, I also commend that book to you if you're not yet convinced about the necessity of dropping the bomb at the time. I highly recommend this book. Um, the book details that when face was surrendered to the United States, to the shock and horror of our, of our Marines, mothers threw their children over cliffs as well. This was an enemy who experienced, like the Germans, the merciless firebombing campaigns that ignited desperate fleeing men, women, and children. In that book, Downfall, it describes the devastation after the firebombing campaign against Tokyo. In it, it said, the entire river surface was black as far as the eye could see, black with burned corpses, logs, and who knew what else, but uniformly black from the immense heat that had seared its way through the area as the fire dragon passed. It was impossible to tell the bodies from the logs at a distance. The bodies were all nude, the clothes had been burned away, and there was a dreadful sameness about them, no telling men from women or even children. All that remained were pieces of charred meat, 
bodies and parts of bodies were carbonized, absolutely black, end quote. And yet, the imperialists did not relent. In our effort to stop Japan, an aggressor that prompted the U.S. To entry into the war with those attacks at Pearl Harbor, the United States prepared to invade the Japanese mainland. In 1945, my own paternal grandfather was on a troop ship on his way to invade. Likewise, my husband's maternal grandfather was stationed in the Philippines awaiting his orders to invade. For months before the bombing, the War Department had been preparing for an invasion of Japan, the planning of which included casualty figures. A study for the Office of War Secretary Henry Stimson put the figures at 400,000 to 800,000 dead GIs, with Japanese fatalities reckoned between 5 million to 10 million military personnel and civilians. Had President Truman opted to invade rather than drop those bombs, surely our grandfathers would have been among the dead, and so would many of the fathers and grandfathers of millions of contemporary Americans, certainly many in this room. The United States saved hundreds of thousands of lives and ended the war that had already claimed roughly 400,000 Americans. Okay, so what now, though? Aren't major wars behind us? The United Nations recently considered a draft resolution banning nuclear weapons. In March of this year, General Hyten, he's the commander of U.S. Strategic Command, was asked about the idea of banning nuclear weapons from the planet. What was his answer? That it was a nice idea, however improbable? Or, like President Barack Obama's, it was a goal worth aspiring to, but perhaps not in this lifetime, certainly not in this lifetime. Or maybe if it was something like, it sounds great, but everybody else should go first before the United States. No, that was not his response. He said, quote, can I imagine a world without nuclear weapons? Yes, I can. That's a world I didn't like, end quote. He explained that in the six years before the U.S. dropped the bomb, as many as 80 million people were killed in World War II. The world has, has experienced death and destruction since then, but nowhere near as close to that. Those bombs were not just used on those days in 1945 either. The United States, if you, if you sort of unpack what General Hyten was saying, the United States has used them every day since and is using them right now to deter large-scale war. So let's zoom in and see some of the arguments that what I call nuclear idealists make in defense of U.S. disarmament. If nuclear weapons in the United States arsenal are in fact deterring large-scale war, war, why, what are the arguments then that the nuclear disarmers used to actually try to compel the United States to move down to lower weapons? Um, and they, they make the argument that we simply don't need the, the number that we have and also that we can actually uh, uh, inspire others across the planet to actually go down to lower numbers by disarming ourselves and also by limiting um, what we do in terms of testing and actually in terms of not developing new nuclear weapons that has been a U.S. policy, an informal U.S. policy um, of the previous administrations. But we can look to real-life examples as recently as the previous administration to see if that is in fact what happened in the world. 
the president gave his now famous uh, speech in Prague early in his administration in 2009, where he announced that it was a goal of his to take the world down to uh, lower nuclear weapons, and that the United States would lead first. Also, part of that um, agenda would be to actually help the help to compel the Iranians to forego their nuclear weapons program as well. Another piece of that, though, was negotiating the New START treaty with the Russians. Um, and the the president's the, the 2010. I'd also commend to you um, for those who are interested in learning more about this. The 2010 nuclear posture review is the last nuclear posture the United States conducted, and so this follow-on nuclear posture review. Posture review will be um, uh, uh, updating that one because a lot has changed since the Obama administration's 2010 review. And in that, though, the U.S. doctrines and declaratory policies and what the United States would do for a nuclear force was based on uh, certain threats that the administration perceived. And, and one of those conditions was our relationship with the Russians, in which the Obama administration uh, wrote in the nuclear posture review that the United States and Russia were no longer adversaries. And so the, the United States and Russia signed the New START Treaty. It limited um, U.S. and Russian deployed strategic nuclear weapons to 1550. Um, it did not include uh, tactical nuclear weapons, and those are short-range uh, nuclear weapons, of which the Russians outnumber American nuclear weapons 10 to 1. Um, supposedly, the, the Obama administration wanted to include those, but um, since it's <clears throat> in the Russians' interest not to get rid of them, um, they certainly just took those off the table immediately in the early part of the negotiations. Um, <clears throat> So since New START was ratified, much has happened. The year before the Obama nuclear posture review asserted that the United States and the Russian Federation were no longer adversaries, um, much has changed. Of course, the Russians invaded Ukraine. Um, and uh, uh, by the time the Obama administration closed out its second term and the United States hosted the nuclear summit, which if you paid attention to the nuclear summit, was basically just to sort of construct the Obama legacy on nuclear disarmament and sort of write that a narrative and hail the accomplishments. Um, but the Russians didn't even show up to that, which speaks a lot to what um, the relationship was between Russia and the United States. <clears throat> and <coughs> under Putin, um, <clears throat> Russia's saber nuclear saber-rattling saber increased through wargaming exercises. The Russians flew nuclear-capable aircraft into NATO airspace um, and continue to do this throughout um, <clears throat> uh, from the time we negotiated the New START Treaty. Um, North Korea continues to test nuclear weapons and its delivery systems, ICBMs. And Iran, Iran deal or no Iran deal, continues to improve its missile program, one that makes little sense without a plan to put a nuclear payload on top, if not today or tomorrow, soon. <coughs> the idea that if the United States lowers the number of nuclear weapons in its own nuclear arsenal or limits itself in other ways by refusing to test or build new nuclear weapons, that other nations will therefore be inspired to, to follow that lead has not proven to be the case. In fact, real-world evidence 
not ideology or theory or emotionalism, but real world evidence supports the opposite. As the United States has gone to lower numbers and limited itself in its ability to build a credible nuclear deterrent, other nations have actually increased their own nuclear forces. And so <clears throat> that brings us to what should we do then if, not, if the nuclear idealists are wrong? And that is this. In order for deterrence to work and to continue to work as it has since World War II, the United States must build and maintain and modernize a credible threat of force. And you'll hear that buzzword a lot, a credible threat of force. And what that means is believable. Believable to our enemies, believable to our would-be enemies. And if we are to provide a credible nuclear umbrella or assurance to our allies, a credible, a believable nuclear assurance to our allies. So if the United States threatens to wipe out all of Moscow, is that a credible threat? I would argue no, it's not a credible threat. We would not target civilians. It doesn't matter who's in the White House. Republican, Democrat, Barack Obama, Donald Trump. Nobody be would believe that we would. So therefore, that is not a credible threat of force. So we need a spectrum of options to hold at risk a large menu of targets in a variety of countries. And if we intend to continue providing nuclear assurance to our allies in exchange for their living up to their promise not to develop or acquire nuclear weapons, we must provide credible assurances. And that means we must take into account what our nuclear what our allies consider for that nuclear assurance. If our allies are not satisfied with our promises to retaliate in their defense, should they be attacked with a nuclear weapon, they will be tempted to acquire their own nuclear capabilities. And do, do, do you see that then? That the, it's sort of counterintuitive and it's a little bit ironic that those who are most fervently in favor of taking the world down to zero nuclear weapons their own policies that they have advocated have actually shown that as the United States has gone to lower numbers and as the United States has actually shown that it's not as committed to perhaps nuclear modernization or nuclear sustainment or that it lacks the will perhaps to actually make sure their nuclear assurances are credible that it's countries like South Korea and Japan that have talked about acquiring their own nuclear capabilities. Also, because of the Iran deal, there was some chatter in some of the media that Saudi Arabia then would be tempted to obtain its own nuclear capability should they believe that the Iranians could have a breakout capability of a nuclear weapon. So does the disarmers or the nuclear idealists that have actually tempted global nuclear proliferation, not those who, should think, who believe, like I do, that the United States should maintain a robust and credible and flexible nuclear deterrent. So what this means is that rather than beginning with the fantasy that the world is safer now and getting safer, and that the, irration and the irrational belief that nuclear weapons are themselves inherently immoral, much like the Catholic Church um, 
uh, and other mainstream Protestant churches have promoted. Um, very recently, actually, they, they, they have continued to, and they have a, um, I, I don't want to characterize them unfairly, but there are, there are different degrees to, to the extent that they um, advocate for the U.S. moving down to lower numbers. Um, but I, and I'll actually commend, I wrote a, uh, an article on the morality of U.S. nuclear weapons in Providence's magazine, and I discussed the different denominations and the Catholic Church's position on that, and why I actually believe that the that those churches have actually been co-opted by the disarmers and the left, um, and that uh, what is truly moral and compatible with traditional Christian just war theory is that the United States maintain a robust and strong, credible nuclear deterrent force. Um, and so I'll just close with this, and then I hope to open it up to discussion, because I don't think I've said enough controversial or provocative things, and so... Um, I hope that I've uh, stirred up some ideas or some, some conversation that we can kind of go back and forth a little bit. So, so again, just to reiterate, we should have a clear-eyed, realistic view of the world. We have a dynamic threat scenario in which there are multiple countries with nuclear weapons or want nuclear weapons. This is not the Cold War. It's not the United States and the Soviet Union. Therefore, the paradigm of mutually assured destruction between two countries no longer applies. Therefore, we must have a nuclear force that understands that and is suitable so the president has maximum options in dealing with um, very tailored and specific threats um, that, that have different regimes that care about different things. So we have to target something different in North Korea because it has to be something that the regime actually cares about. Does it care about its peasants, that it starves? It does not. So we're not going to, to target them. We wouldn't anyway. Um, but it wouldn't be a credible threat of force. And then the Russians, of course, have a variety of different military threats that, that we would um, hold at risk. Um, as do the Chinese and the Iranians, just as an example. Um, and our policies should reflect, um, should not only should our nuclear force be structured to do this, but um, the U.S. Uh, declaratory policies should also um, leave it clear in the case, for instance, of the Russians that have threatened to use low-yield, remember I talked about those tactical nuclear weapons which the United States didn't include in the New START Treaty? The Russians have then threatened to employ those in response to a purely conventional non-nuclear attack in the NATO region um, in order to de-escalate a conventional conflict. Um, I have argued that the United States should make clear that any nuclear weapon um, regardless of how little a nuclear weapon is, would be considered a, just a nuclear weapon and we would respond accordingly. Um, so we should make it clear through our declaratory um, responses, but also leaving enough room so that the United States is not hamstrung by what it can and cannot use um, in response to some of these threats. Um, but then again, our nuclear force is also wearing, um, it's aging, and uh, to the Obama administration's credit, it did do a pretty good job of putting nuclear modernization funds there, but we need to see that through and make sure the funds get appropriated and used and that our current um, programs of record are finally uh, modernized and sustained and uh, that, that particular capabilities that need to be replaced are also replaced. Um, I won't go into some of the technical details of those unless there are those in the room that really want to talk about things like um, uh, the LRSO, et cetera, the cruise missile. But uh, I'll leave it at that and um, turn it over to questions um, and hope to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, I've got one over here. Your thoughts on the nuclear test ban I'm sorry, we would be that was left. So we're not in the, 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 we never ratified the test ban treaty. 
um, much to the Clinton administration's and the Obama administration's disappointment. Um, that is very wise. I would, if I could give uh, credit, Senator John Kyle from Arizona retired recently, well retired, I guess it's been five years ago, six years, six years. Um, he and a bunch of other very wise senators uh, really kept the United States off that treaty. Um, but to, to the credit of the bipartisan Senate, it was pretty, it was soundly defeated, soundly rejected. Um, so we never did ratify that. And the idea, of course, is that um, we, we cannot test on our own. We can, we, if we don't, if our labs deem it unnecessary to test, um, we don't have to test. And we haven't since the 90s. It was H.W. Uh, Bush that actually imposed that, uh, that self-limiting ban on ourselves. Um, so there's no reason for us to be bound by a treaty. Um, we can just not test. Um, other, other nations, um, like for instance, the, rest, the, the nations that are eager for the United States to, to, sign, to uh, be party to that treaty are uh, nations who have it in their interest for the United States not to test, but they themselves are rumored to be testing anyway. So the Russians now, you know, are supposedly abiding by that treaty, and yet um, there is still plenty of evidence that, that their definition of zero yield is actually higher than zero. Um, so um, my recommendation has long been the United, there is nothing, I can't imagine this administration uh, being party to that treaty um, to its credit. It does not serve U.S. interests, and you know we, we need to have the flexibility if we do need to resume testing, um, that we do have that ability. But uh, so far, none of the lab directors have advised that as something that we need to do. Yes, sir. So, uh, just because the lab directors don't suggest it, I mean, they they are probably very aware of the situation. Uh, to me, that's that's that is not persuasive. Listen to a lot of these kind of presentations, and people know a lot about this. And it seems like our our nuclear stockpile is aging and hasn't been tested, and they don't really know if it's any good anymore. So if you don't know how, what percentage is still good, you're going to go into a war like that. You're going to break. I don't get that. I I think we need to test. That might, that might be the case, and we should have that debate. I'm not opposed to testing if we need to test. Um, but it, but the people who are in charge of our nuclear forces are the ones that have to make that argument. It's not going to be a. Um, it will be a. It will ultimately be a political decision to do so if we need to. Um, but we have to get to the point where there's enough people who are saying, "Yeah, now it's time." I will say though, I'm sympathetic to your argument because, you know, it's been decades since we've tested these. Um, they've all been. It's through modeling and computer, you know, programs that we even know anything about them. And the, the, those who were actually there the last time we tested are now aging out themselves. And so we have a bunch of young people um, at the labs who, who don't even know anything about testing. So it is, um, it is very likely, uh, and to my mind, that, uh, that uh, uh, plausible that at some point the, we, the United States would need to resume testing. Another reason just to stay off the treaty, um, stay out of the treaty. But I'm, I'm sympathetic. I'm sympathetic to your argument. Yes, sir. I think INF is probably a bilateral treaty between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. A lot of these old treaties have been bilateral, but now, of course, we have the rise of so many other powers. And um, I, I'm wondering if, if just just what 
what a new, any kind of new treaty would, would be like, and, and, and whether we should just consider nuclear or somehow weave in chemical, biological, geothermal, any, any number of these, these dangerous weapons that in their, in their own way could be just as dangerous. Uh, do you see any future in deals? Because unless we have a really good deal maker, um, as our president, you know, where it seems like any deal is bad. No, you're, you're exactly right. Of course, the INF Treaty, for those who aren't familiar, is the only treaty that actually abolished an entire class of nuclear weapons, and that was um, negotiated um, by President Reagan. And, um, uh, but the Russians have been found in violation of the INF Treaty. They are currently in violation of the INF Treaty. The United States and the Russian Federation are still party to that treaty, even though the Russians have been found in violation of that treaty. Um, uh, what's especially uh, troubling to me, troubling is an understatement, is that the Obama administration negotiated the New START Treaty, and the timeline is a little bit fuzzy, but if you really press into it, it certainly looks as though the Obama administration understood that the Russians were in violation of the INF Treaty when they pushed it speedily through the U.S. Senate, um, to which I would say that was stupid. Um, why, why would the United States sign on to another arms control treaty with a country party to a treaty, another arms control treaty, in which they are in violation? And why would you think that they would be, uh, they would um, follow the next treaty if they were not following the previous treaty? Um, so this is, this is a problem that the Obama administration handed over to the incoming Trump administration of which um, they are very well aware and are, and are, are having to take that into consideration as they deal with the Russians. Um, but to your question, yet many of these treaties, this is why, uh, this is why George Washington in his farewell address warned our new country to be wary of treaties, of, le of permanent treaties, because there is a dynamic threat environment and heads of regimes change and the threat environment changes, and you want the United States to be able to act in the interest of its own citizens. And so China, for instance, is the new rising power, nuclear power. So um, it, it is it that you have to consider if you're just going to have the United States and Russia negotiating these arms control treaties, what about these other countries in which they are? Um, they are very, uh, they are paying attention to with great interest in how we negotiate them. So. Um, all that to say is, you know, do, do I foresee the United States uh, becoming party to any of these trees? I would say I have a very hard time seeing this administration uh, with the current heads of the regimes that we're dealing with finding any particular treaty uh, satisfactory um, in terms of, of actually pushing forward for, for U.S. interests on the nuclear front, certainly. Um, the Russians have, as the Obama administration moved nuclear deterrence further away from U.S. national security policy in terms of leaning on it, um, the Russians have put it first, have put it uh, in a prominent place in terms of their uh, military doctrine. And um, again, I talk about that escalating a conventional situation in order to de-escalate. Um, that idea of using nuclear weapons first in a conventional conflict, of modernizing. I mean, when, when, when the United States talks about modernizing our nuclear weapons, we're talking about patching what we've got together. We're talking about making these legacy old systems work. We're not talking about new nuclear weapons. We've actually put that, um, we've, we've, we've put that own limitation on ourselves. When the Russians talk about nuclear modernization, they're talking about things like Merving, 
putting multiple reentry vehicles on their ICBMs that are very, very difficult um, for the United States to, to to deal with should they launch one at us. Um, in fact, we don't have a we do not have a U.S. missile defense system that is geared towards handling the Russian offensive missile force. Um, so when, when, when we talk about modernizing, we're talking about two completely different things with the United States and what the Russians are doing. They do not hold back. They do not limit themselves in terms of what they actually see as their own interests in terms of nuclear modernization. Yes, sir. So, okay, so, so, so wonderful question. Um, and what I have argued is we have got to shore up our credibility. I mean, we have, um, the, the entire world has watched the United States sort of do this European thing, um, what, what uh, many of our NATO allies have done, which is shown just a, um, a, an, an allergy to, to nuclear weapons to the point where that's where you have the South Koreans and the Japanese talk about um, in domestically the possibility of acquiring their own nuclear weapons. And if they're doing that, you better believe that our adversaries then have, have seen a crack in terms of U.S. Uh, backbone when it comes to nuclear deterrence. So one of the first things I'd say is we have to immediately shore up that credibility. I actually think President Trump is uh, suited for this because you have a lot of people who take him very seriously whenever he makes um, uh, whenever he makes threats. He didn't you know, his, 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 he did not grow up in the Washington political ideological school of thinking, to put it mildly, um, and that, that can make a lot of people uncomfortable. I have expressed my own discomfort in some of the things that he has said re regarding nuclear weapons, but I've sort of, I've seen a pattern in, in, in the way he talks about this where I've actually grown quite comfortable with it, and that is, he's very serious whenever he, whenever he tells you not to use chemical weapons, um, as Bashar al-Assad can attest, um, 
he's quite serious about uh, making you pay for that if you do. And, and I think that that's actually very, very good. So that, that just, just having him in the White House, I think, is actually um, very good for, uh, for stability in that regard. Um, so that's a good thing. Number two, it, it, the budget. We have got to see, even if we can't immediately get this stuff, we, the budget and the appropriations has to be there. We cannot kick the can down the road. Um, I, I try to tell people, you know, the, there's this, these, uh, the price tag associated with nuclear modernization is about 6% of the entire budget, defense budget. The entire defense budget is about 3.5% of, of the U.S. GDP. Um, it is a small amount to pay for uh, immense global security. So uh, that has got to be there. And, and, and that will be a very good thing. The other thing that I would say is um, we can forward deploy some of these things that we have chosen not to in the European theater. Uh, that, would, that, would be, um, that would show that the United States is serious. Of course, that's going to take some um, convincing of our European NATO allies, although I think that the Trump administration is working on that as well. Um, but, but forward deployed for some of this stuff. And then uh, our wargaming. You know, the Russians have been wargaming, nuclear wargaming. We've done some of that, a little bit of it. We could do a little bit more of that. Um, I know that that would uh, be of great uh, assurance to, for instance, the Poles and the Baltic countries. Um, so that's something else that we can do, too. And then, um, you know, the, the people forget sometimes this. In Washington, D.C., we get really wonky and we start discussing the... the these, these American documents that we think, you know, we, we sort of forget that the rest of the world is reading them too. These are political documents. They communicate a lot to our allies and to our adversaries. And so, um, though I, I think that there was a lot of good in the Obama administration's NPR, I try to remind people, the, the Obama administration wanted to do, they, want, they, they wanted to take U.S. nuclear weapons down by another third after negotiating the New START Treaty. This was an administration ideologically committed to hamstringing the United States to the best of its ability while it held office, and it was unable to do so to a great degree because of the threat that it just sort of was mugged by, the reality, when, when Russia invaded Ukraine, and also because of the strong bipartisan consensus that still remains in the U.S. Senate. Um, so, for instance, the nuclear triad that, that was much discussed in the, the Republican debate, or I guess it was, it was the presidential debates, I think it was the Republican uh, debate. I don't know if it was between the president, now president, and, and, and uh, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. But um, the question was asked about the triad, the three legs of the nuclear triad. Um, the, the arms control folks, the nuclear idealists, have been wanting to get rid of that land-based leg of the triad. This administration, if it was going to be done, it could have been done. Um, the ICBM leg of the triad is aging out. We either have to replace it or not have it because the current one we have is old. Um, and it... it it made its way into the, it was um, recommitted in the Obama nuclear posture review. So that's something that was supported. Um, and so, and there's other things about not spring off no first use that the United States, the arms control people wanted the, um, the uh, United States to promise that we would never be the ones to use nuclear weapons first. Um, but it has long been American policy to have a policy of strategic ambiguity, which is say, we're not gonna say because we don't want to attempt, we don't want to tempt a power like Russia to use a massive conventional force because it thinks it can get away with it, then we're not going to respond um, in other ways. And so um, we kept swearing off uh, no first use. 
And so there's some very good things that I found very promising in the previous administration's nuclear posture review. So again, um, making sure that strong support for the nuclear triad, uh, strategic ambiguity is maintained in the nuclear posture review. Um, I suspect there's going to be uh, a very different laying out of the global threat than what the previous NPR would be. Um, that will speak volumes in terms of uh, letting our adversaries know they're on notice and letting our allies know that we're there in terms of committing assurance. So that document, I think, is just crucial. Um, and then the associated document that comes with it, the Ballistic Missile Defense Review. Um, I, I'm actually, I, I do nuclear deterrent policy, but I also do ballistic missile defense policy. And, and one of the things that, that I have continued to advocate is as we, for, for this current day and age, where we have um, multiple nuclear powers that are marrying nuclear technology with ballistic missile technology. This is why I, I, I had such a problem with the Iran deal. Um, leave aside all of the, whether or not you can, um, it's verifiable and that you can really hold the Iranians to account and the fact that we've allowed them to enrich at all, which long U.S. policy has been, we're not going to allow the Iranians to enrich uranium at all. Um, putting all of that aside, we totally carved out an exception for ballistic missiles. So the Iranians are not in violation of the JCPOA, that's the Iran deal, if they test, and they have been testing, ballistic missiles. They're in violation of U.S. sanctions. They're not in violation of the Iran deal. Um, and the, the, those, those missiles are the delivery systems for nuclear weapons. Um, so we, we have got to uh, include missile defense as part of our overall strategic deterrent policy. It cannot just be nuclear weapons. It cannot just be conventional offensive weapons. It has to be a mix of conventional offensive weapons, missile defense, as well as nuclear deterrent um, capabilities. And so the other thing that I would say to get to your point is um, we have held back um, since Ronald Reagan gave his SDI speech in terms of uh, building a missile defense system, President Bush withdrew the United States from the ABM Treaty in 2002, which allowed the United States to build and deploy a missile defense system. We've made great progress. We've got a long way to go. But in this last uh, National Defense Authorization Act by Congress, it, it amended U.S. law so that it is no longer U.S. law to only build a limited missile defense system to defend against rogue states like North Korea and Iran. It's struck limited, so now the United States can feel free. It, it, it could always do this because the limited wasn't, it didn't prohibit the United States from building a robust missile defense system, but it was interpreted in a way to only build a limited missile defense system. We can now, I mean, this, the, the sky is quite literally the limit. Um, I have long argued that the United States should be building uh, another layer, um, a sensor layer and a, a kill layer in space that would give the United States the best vantage point for seeing and intercepting um, missiles regardless of, of the territory from which they are launched. So all of these things uh, I think would do wonders for shoring up U.S. credibility um, and uh, you know the world has become a lot more unstable in the last eight years because of the policies of the, of, um, of, of the disarmament agenda I would argue. Let me see if there's another question over here and then I'll come back to you. Do you have a question? Okay, no question. Okay. Um, I was going to say, when I, um, when I asked about the near term things that we can do, um, you know, we are not prohibited uh, on the treaty uh, to rebirth our, our system. We downloaded uh, Minuteman 1, uh, we based out DMX years ago. Um, but I mean, in terms of near term, if you want to boost the I'm not sure numbers really matter as much as the modernization of the basic uh, system. But 
but I mean, there are things we could do. And the same thing with the uh, SLPF. We downloaded the, uh, we uploaded the warnings list. Um, well, you know, it, the, the, the cut argument would be, well, you're just going to make the rubble bounce. But the issue is, is to send the signal to the other side that we are, in fact, serious about this. And that is a relatively cheap way to do it. And the warheads are still there. We didn't get rid of the warheads. So, um, and, and I'm not sure whether that's you know, I, oh, oh, the, the, the point there would be, you know, the, um, and I can tell you with 100% certainty that the arms control community would say that's so destabilizing, of which, the, of course, the response to that is the Russians are already moving. They're already moving. Um, so I don't know enough about what, what you know, um, I haven't, I have not participated in a war game to see what that would look like, but I certainly don't think that we should be prohibited from doing anything from, from some sort of theoretical or ideological um, you know, uh, uh, opposition to it if the real world situation um, and that evidence shows us that it would in fact check the Russians. Um, there are some really easy things that, uh, you know, that, um, that Secretary Mattis was asked about during his confirmation hearing and that's the new cruise missile. Um, that would be, that would communicate some seriousness on the part of the United States vis-a-vis -vis Russia. Um, the arms control folks have said um, that they don't want that new cruise missile because the new cruise missile, the, what makes it really great is that it has this uh, uh, um, lower yield capability um, to, to, that would enable the United States to get it where it wants to go with their lower yield capability. It provides the United States with more options. What the arms control or the nuclear idealists would say, what they have said, but that makes it much more likely that the United States would employ it. To which I would say, well, yes, which would make us not have to employ it. You, you want a credible threat of force. If we only keep big dumb bombs, then it's much less likely that the United States would employ them and the Russians know that and the Chinese know that and the Iranians know that and the North Koreans know that. So what you want is a wide spectrum of flexible options that the United States has that this idea that the United States should seek to limit itself is totally um, alien to my way of thinking in terms of what the United States government is required to do under the US Constitution to protect its own people. That is a foreign way of thinking about um, American national security policy that is anathema to how the founders understood what the United States should be doing. So the, 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 there, there, the Outer Space Treaty prohibits the use of WMDs in space, right. but define that. But, but, but we'll see, but, but, but define that. Is, is, a sensor, is a sensor layer in space a weapon of mass destruction? I would argue, no, it's a, it's a sensor layer. Um, is an ICBM that travels through the exoatmosphere 
a WMD and is it in space? I would say yes. Is the Chinese use uh, employment of an anti-satellite weapon that went up into space and destroyed a, a, a satellite and spewed tens of thousands of debris, a, a, weapon, a space weapon? It's mass destruction and they've, they're the ones that used it and so I would argue that space has long been weaponized. So spa space has long been weaponized. Um, uh, so, so putting that aside, though, I would argue that 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 the policies that I'm advocating for a we already have satellites in space to help us see what to help us see when when missiles are launched. What we don't have is a um, we have technical capabilities that we are not using that we could put in space that would that would enable the United States to have what's called birth to death tracking of missiles. So right now what we can see in, is based on our radar that is on land and on sea and the limited capability we have in space, we get snapshots of missiles as they are um, prepared and launched. What I want us to have is birth to death tracking so we can see it um, anywhere on the globe and that we're able to know where it's going um, that would enable the United States to uh, have more control over the situation, to try to de-escalate a situation. We can see where that missile is going. It would take away some of the ambiguities that the United States, it would actually decrease the possibility that the United States could inadvertently escalate a situation if we might have other options, if the missile isn't going to land on our own territory or ally territory, etc. So um, to me, all of the pros are vastly numerous and outnumber any negative, you know, for that kind of capability. And then also for a kill capability, again, um, there's been numerous studies that the United States can do this and that it would give the United States what's called a boost phase defense capability to intercept missiles um, as they're boosting because once a missile is uh, has passed boosting and is in its mid-course and terminal phase of flight, then you're talking about, well, not only are you talking about um, You've got a much less time to intercept the missile down here if it's you know once it's falling on your own territory, but you have um, countermeasures and decoys that are very difficult to intercept. But if you can intercept and kill that missile before it has the opportunity to release decoys and countermeasures, uh, that that's the way you want to do it. Um, if you in fact know uh, or have good reason to believe that that missile is in fact pointed towards the United States or an ally. I wouldn't, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know enough about that. Um, I, I would say though that the less debris we want in space, the better. Um, and so I, I, it, to me, that's just at, just from knowing what I do, the limited information I do know about that, that probably isn't the direction we want to go. But, um, but again, I don't, I don't have any ideological opposition to doing anything that would be um, optimally in the best interest of the United States. Yeah. Again. Yes, sir. General Mattis said uh, it would be catastrophic. If War with North Korea would be catastrophic. Right. Uh, point blank. I've been thinking about this for a long time. Uh, what would you do? What do you think is the best way for us? Or what can we do? Either number one, either to prevent or otherwise. I don't know how to say it. No, it's a good question. Um, 
uh, again, you know, we have to take a mold. It's going to take a multi-faceted approach to dealing with the North Korean regime. I don't want to just beat up on just the last administration for their inability to to get the regime to back off its program because the previous administrations weren't able to do it either. Um, it is interesting, though, that uh, the North Koreans have become far more audacious under the Obama administration than they were under the previous administration in terms of the, the tempo of their testing. Um, the, just on, on, the, on the capability piece, what worries me is their ICBM capability, specifically their uh, road mobile ICBM capability. And the reason anytime you, you see in the news they talk about a KN-08 or the mobile missile system, the reason that that's especially scary is because they can roll that out and pop one off at a much shorter notice than, than, than whenever they're doing it on a, um, on a stationary launch pad where we can actually see what they're doing um, and, and we can see them preparing. And they can also get it much closer to their shores. So they can get it deeper into the uh, continental United States. The previous Northern com Command commanders have testified that through modeling, we believe that the North Koreans could have the capability to hit the United States with an ICBM should they desire to do that. Uh, however, doing so would be unreliable. And what that means is they might not be able to get it exactly where they want it, but a missile in Kansas is a pretty bad day for the United States. Um, doesn't have to be in, in New York City. And then, and then you also have that that concern as well. It it, it, it doesn't have it, it doesn't have to be accurate. And, and the fact that they've already successfully launched satellite launches means that they would be able to to launch an ICBM. Um, with we believe that they could likely do it. That the technical piece that they have not proven is getting the reentry vehicle to actually come back down into the atmosphere. So um, back to your question, what do you do? We have to have the Chinese. We have to have the Chinese help us pressure the North Koreans. I know to which you say, well, good luck, because it's never going to happen. Um, um, but I will say this, that the Chinese, it is not in the Chinese interest to totally stop the North Koreans. It's, it's not going to be. It hasn't been. But it would be in the Chinese interest to get the North Koreans to stop, um, at least set back its missile and nuclear program if it means other, other bad things economically for the Chinese. Um, I have actually been fairly impressed with, with so far the progress that the United States has made. Um, the, the, the Chinese, to me, what it looks like to me, are paying much more closer attention to what the United States is saying and doing than what they did previously. Um, you know, uh, you, you hear a lot of the commentary in the national security field out in Washington talking about what a disaster this administration is for the rest of the world, no one, you know, that no one knows what we're thinking or doing, and so therefore it's creating an unstable situation. I would argue the opposite is very, very true. Um, I think that, I think, I, I think that the that I think that the Chinese have taken notice, and, um, and, uh, if, if there ever was a time in recent history in which they really don't want the North Koreans to be launching a nuclear weapon, it would be it would be now. And you should never depend on the Chinese. I, I'm not. I would just say that's one of the approaches. Um, um, I also think we shouldn't take anything off the table. Uh, I don't think this administration has in terms of um, willingness to actually use force to destroy their weapon systems that they have. Um, and then our missile defense system, we just had a really great successful intercept test for the ground-based mid-course defense system. That's the element of the missile defense system that we have. It's the only system we have that protects the United States from long-range ballistic missiles. Um, the most recent test we had intercepted uh, our first ICBM-class target. We've ever, we've ever done that. And that was a direct hit. We, we nailed that thing. That's great. Um, not only because it, it shows that we do have the capability, but it communicates the North Koreans that they might not be able to get one of these things off. Um, 
I don't know if you saw the news too. The um, the North Koreans just released our college student that 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 they had been holding hostage. Um, I that's all I know. I I just exhausted all the information I know about that. But what that does tell me is this administration is putting a lot of pressure in some way, shape, or form on the North Koreans because the North Koreans have have had no. Uh, it has not been in their interest to release any of, of the American prisoners up until, you know, nations do not act out of goodwill. And um, that, 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 sounds, that sounds like something that um, uh, it should be an obvious statement, but I feel like we have to go back to basic principles now. Human beings, um, regimes are run by human beings. These are not just inanimate objects here. The North Korean regime is, is ruled by individuals within the regime and they, they are not acting out of the goodwill of their hearts. And they're not acting because they want to see, you know, they want to follow the lead of the United States. Um, they're acting in their own interests. And so the, 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 the United States, as led by President Trump, has made it in the North Koreans' interests as they perceive it to give us back one of our Americans. To me, that is a wonderful thing and that is greatly encouraging. Um, Defensive system or nuclear? nuclear. That is not. I, I mean, I, I I still believe that they should not because I believe that uh, we since World War II the United States has maintained stability by offering this nuclear umbrella. What I would like to see is the Japanese U.S. the U.S. Japan alliance becomes stronger than it ever has. It's showing it's we're moving in that direction. And what I would like to see is the Japanese much more confident in the U.S. Um, nuclear umbrella assurances that we have provided them. I, although I, I, I do understand why there is chatter within the Japanese population that, that perhaps it's time that the United States should, or that the Japanese, um, Japanese sh should not count on the United States. I, I would hate to see that happen for stability's sake. Um, I, I do think that the U.S. and Japan, um, the SM-32A, is a ballistic missile defense system that the United States um, will be testing very soon. That's our cooperative de missile defense system we have with the Japanese. Um, um, I'd like to see it. We've already had a successful test of that. I'd like to see another one here coming up. That would be also be great for deterrent purposes. Um, and I do see that the United States and Japan and South Korea are moving more towards a missile defense um, partnership that I think could lead to an architecture that would be very good for the modern threat of North Korea. Um, that should certainly be part of it. I'm going to have to close out there. I'm sorry we, we have run out of time. But thank you so much for coming out um, on this hot day. <laughs>